I do that? Oh my god. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I didn't even put you on a, put you on the spot. Yeah. Hi, Gina. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Have you ever had somebody ask you the classic question, the like the where do you see yourself in five years question? <sighs> Oof. Where do I see myself in five months? Like, <laughs> one yes. step at a time, Seriously, please. don't you just want to just you kick those people in the teeth? It's true. Yes. It's true. You and I are very similar in that we're like pretty, like, we're like, I, I, well, I think we're similar. So I'm a pretty on the ground person. Like I could tell okay. you what my to do's are, what my meetings are for today. I know what I'm doing today. I know what I'm doing, you know, this week. I even maybe know what I'm doing for the next couple of weeks. But like once you get into like the, you know, months and years zone, hey, anything, anything can happen. Anything, I mean, no, all bets are off. All bets are off. It gets very <laughs> hazy as you look out into the distance. Exactly, exactly. But I've been thinking about this because one of the things that we ask our product managers to do in particular mm. is to like build a thing, like do a thing, right? And there's a date, right? There's yes. a deadline and we have to deliver a thing. This is how we structure all our engagements with our clients. Yep. Mm-hmm. We say, we're going to deliver this thing and it's going to be on this date. So everyone is super focused on the date and getting all the things done by the date. But the, but the thing that we ask them to do in this process is to also think about like what's going to happen beyond the date, which is really hard. It's yes. really hard to be in the weeds of delivering a thing by a date, but also thinking about what could be in the future. But you kind of have to do this with software, right? Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. Software is never done. It is both the most beautiful thing and the most frustrating thing about working <laughs> on a software project. Because if you're, if you're like building a building or building a house, you build the house and then you're done. And you might add an addition or you might improve it in the future, but you're done. You move into the house, you start living in the house. Like there is a very finite, you know, once you hit that deadline, you're good to go. Software is different. It is, you know, you haven't poured a concrete foundation. You haven't, you know, erected the steel walls. It is by its nature, you are expected to continue to to build it, to to evolve it, to optimize it, to shore it up. There will always be a next phase when you're working on a software yes. project, you know? Right, you don't have that complete blueprint. This is where every single beam and wall is gonna go. Exactly. We say, okay, we're gonna build, you know, the you know, if you're starting from scratch, from nothing, we're gonna work our way to an MVP, minimum viable product, right? Mm-hmm. Just do the, the bare minimum, right? But if it's good software and people like it and they wanna continue to invest in it, right? Which is the hope, you know, and you're building for success, there's going to be all these other releases, you know, V1, V2. There are certain product people who I've worked with in my career who I would describe as like as product visionaries. Mm. Like they could look at a simple feature or a function and blow out like in their minds, like what this could mean at scale and what other things this could do and how it could integrate with other things. They just see like this huge big picture. And it always blew my mind as an engineer because I was always like, I got to ship this ticket. I've got right. this ticket in front of me and I got to ship this ticket. You're one of these people that can do this. Like I've seen you look at software that we've been building. Like you're able to like think ahead and, and have that sort of big picture view of what's possible. What, how, do, how does that work? I mean, I can't boil it down into like, a, you know, a sentence or two. I think it's it's partially experience and it's, you know, 
I think having vision is thinking about, you know, it, it, you are thinking about those next few phases, right? Or what's coming beyond and you start to play out. You have to make some educated guesses about what your user behaviors are going to be and how they might evolve and change over time given the new, you know, the new powers you're you're putting into someone's hands. I, I would also add, I mean, much in the same way that you can have a product thinker or a designer who's two or three steps ahead, I think there are some really important engineering choices that get made early on that can set up a platform, especially a new platform for future growth and making the inevitable change and optimization that's going to come a lot less painful rather than having to rework a bunch of ground that you already covered. You can do things in the beginning, and I've seen you do this firsthand as an engineering leader, is think about, okay, how do we make smart, pragmatic, future-looking choices that are not, you know, prematurely optimized, but are well set up for the future? And I'm curious, like, are there some of those things that we can share today as we think about, like, okay, if I'm embarking on a new software effort, what are the choices that I make now that are going to put me in a much better position for 2.0. Yeah, definitely. We, we should talk about those things. It's funny because there is a tension, right? Because as engineers, you're constantly told, like, don't yes. prematurely optimize. Don't invest too much to build for traffic or users or problems that we're never going to have. Like, let's focus on getting it out the door. But I've also just, I've worked on projects. This has happened to me too many times in my career where you're just trying to get something out the door. You don't cut corners, but you don't, you're not thinking about optimizing, right? And then you go live and it's a successful launch and a bunch of people mm -hmm. hit it at the same time. This is I've seen this play out so many times and it's slow or non-responsive or, you know, the page doesn't load or it's not, it's, it's just slow, right? Because oh, you didn't I'm sweating even plan just thinking for that. about it. You're right? You're sweating just thinking about it because you know that that person, that owner, that business owner, that stakeholder, that product person is like, this is, you know, first impressions only happen once. Yes. Right? And we, we messed up. Like, this is a bad experience because we didn't think ahead and make this, you know, work for, you know, the, the success case, right? So there's this balance between, you know, don't prematurely optimize but be ready for success and success is going to mean, you know, scale and change and, you know, needing to, you know, respond to bug reports and, and fairly quickly, right? Mm -hmm. Like evolution pretty quickly. I, I think this is, it's really hard to be in these two mindsets. The mindset of like, I got to deliver by my date, but also I have to make sure that I'm going to be ready for whatever that next, next phase is. And I think, I think there's product thinking involved. Um, I think that engineers sometimes get far in their own heads and think I want to optimize these things because they're the best practice and the right way to do it versus like, this is what, you know, of the future of this product or this product demands. And I think also you can spend too much time getting ready for, you know, you can miss your dates by focusing too much on getting everything perfectly right. So it's a balance. Totally. It is a balance. I wonder though, are there things that, you know, that don't cost too much upfront yeah. that you can start to do early on? So here's an example that comes to my mind. Yep. We do a lot of work with uh, AWS, Amazon Web Services. And, and one of the things that's great about AWS, and I know that some of the other, I mean, many of the other cloud providers have this, is functions as a service, as opposed yes. to a monolithic backend, right? So instead of writing a, you know, a complete web server with a set of resources that you can uh, call with, with HTTP, you write modular functions that just do one specific thing. And then you can deploy them as standalone items. And the sort of beauty in that is that those functions, if you write them in an atomic encapsulated way, they can scale much easier and handle burst traffic much easier than if you, you know, have a monolith that you have to figure out how to uh, separate and scale. And, and if you think about that from the beginning, 
you're not really paying that much of a tax up front, right? But you right. are uh, reaping the rewards on the other side. To, I mean, to the to the point you made before uh, so well, if you do have the success case, you know, where you do get a lot of users very quickly, your platform has small bits that can ramp up very aggressively versus having to, you know, having to do a bunch of rework. So that's one thing that comes to mind. I know there are others. Definitely. I mean, Amazon built their entire infrastructure so they could handle orders on Black Friday, right? Like they built an, a burstable infrastructure <laughs> yes. that they, yes. you know, made available to everyone. So, so having, so right, picking serverless or, fu- you know, functions as a service, uh, knowing that, and you're only going to pay for as much as you use, but if you have that wonderful success case, which everyone hopes for, it'll work. Yeah. What about how you architect your code base? Um, I mean, we, we mentioned, you know, separating uh, services. Are, are there other things that, that you've seen, especially if you go back to, you know, your, your days as a lead engineer, yeah. um, where you feel like good architecture choices set you up better for the future? Definitely. I mean, I think there are times when, you, sh- you know, it's right to focus on reusing code, like code wherever mm-hmm. possible. So, uh, you know, a good example is, if someone wants to build a mobile app, uh, they're building a new mobile app, they want to, you know, release on iOS and they want to fast follow with Android, right? Yep. It's it's a good idea to look at a technology like React Native, which is the same code that can run on both platforms, right? Because you have, yes. you can have, you can just double the impact of your engineering time and you're not maintaining two separate code bases in two, two different languages. You've got one reusable code base. The opposite example is sometimes it makes sense to decouple parts of your architecture. So like your classic like backend, which, you know, provides an API, which is one bit of of, of the architecture separated from your front end, yeah. uh, which is just consuming the API. There's a lot of advantages to separating those pieces of your architecture, right? Because you have you can have different you can have different engineers working on them at the same time with a contract defined about how how you know what the front end is going to expect from the back end, and you can parallelize a lot of that work, and it's and it's very clean because and and you can you can troubleshoot and optimize each separately. So it's it's a really kind of a matter of you know knowing you know what's best and knowing when to reuse versus when to separate and, and abstract things away i've seen engineers over abstract to the point where it was so complex that new engineers were like i have no idea what's going on here so we're just going to start over <laughs> um and then i've seen you know just this big monolith code base which you had to just you know wade through thousands and thousands of files to understand what was going on right instead of having that you know nice nicely defined contract api I mean, it's it's such a good point. It's often a judgment call. Yeah. Uh, we worked on a project a few years ago uh, with a client who shall remain nameless. And when we came into the client, they had defined a, uh, a UI kit, a set of UI components that they intended to be used in their publishing platform, their front end and their CMS. But the reality was the current implementation of their system did not use these components. And they had made this UI layer in anticipation of rewriting parts of this code base. But it was the wrong order because right. they they assumed that they knew exactly what they were going to need. And then when we actually got to building the interfaces, there was a mismatch between you know, what was in the UI library and what was in the actual platform. What would have been, I think, a far better approach is to say, okay, we're going to break ground to come back to the... Uh, term you referenced before, MVP, minimum viable product. We know we want to make the next version of this CMS. We're going to break ground on that. And then once we have a really good outline of what the bones of this platform are, then we can start to abstract a UI layer because then it's the best of both worlds. You get speed of development 
upfront, but then you can uh, leverage the reuse of these components. But once they are well defined, because if right. you if you start with the building blocks and you don't know what you're building, you may build the wrong blocks. You know what yep. I mean? Yep. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, it's funny, like, you know, reusable components, like building the blocks versus the building, you're right, like the block should be driven by (laughs) what the building needs to be, right? (laughs) Yeah. So it's it's funny, it's like, what, you know, what should come first? I mean, classic design, you just design the entire screen, right? But but in a design system situation, you're designing those those components, I think those things have to have to sort of feed one another, right? Exactly. Like, Like real world has to inform the system has to constantly get updated by the realities of what actually, you know, exists on the platform. But I think it's worth investing in the system and updating the system and making it a system so that, you know, you can hand it to an engineer and you can quickly prototype new new screens with, you know, you know, your, your regular UI, you know, interface components, buttons and fields and, you know, whatever, add to cart, whatever it is, without having to, you know, bring in a designer and do a fresh new custom design every time, because that's how you wind up with platforms that have screens that, look like look like they're supposed to look like one another but like a little bit off you know you can tell like oh they redesigned this page recently but this one not so recently (laughs) yep 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 or or they pulled in this other open source front end library over here and it doesn't really fit with the rest of the system yes yes yeah i agree with you that consistency is really important and the ability to not only speed up the development process but in some in some cases you know allow non-developers and non-engineers to start putting things together i mean it's it's a beautiful thing when the CMS itself can allow you to construct pages on the fly um, because yes. you've got a well-defined system of components, of page components. That's right. And it, and it frees up designers to think about the interesting problems, not the login button, you know, exactly. like which every app has, right? Like they can think about the true, the unique, you know, value that the, the platform is driving, like the, mo- the more interesting problems. Yeah. The other thing that I think is important from an engineering standpoint, you said using an open source uh, library, which reminded me, I I think it's really important to use off the shelf and open source components, proven ones, ones that are, you know, (laughs) that are stable and proven, Mm -hmm. not not like, you know, bleeding edge stuff, not alpha beta stuff, but proven components, but but take that stuff off the shelf and not build it from scratch. We spoke to a uh, a prospect who, who shall remain nameless recently, and they were telling us about their e-commerce platform and how they, you know, their engineering team just really wanted the whole entire experience to be bespoke. They wanted it to be exactly what they wanted it to be. So they built the entire e-commerce experience, you know, f- from scratch. And, and at first yep. I was like, wow, that's, you know, that's commitment. Wow. But it turns out it's a couple of years later and they spent all their time updating the e-commerce system and there are people who can't add new SKUs to the store like 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 it, it like it involves a developer to add a new product uh to the store and they're like you know we just should have used you know shopify or like an off-the-shelf yeah. e-commerce stripe app like well, stripe yeah. would have just that then we could have focused on the other parts of the experience which are more interesting to our customers right like um and i was like oh yeah and i i completely see how that happened right like i like there was something really attractive to me as an engineer i was like yeah let's innovate like like e-commerce <laughs> let's do that yeah, let's do something right. new and then it's like oh but now we're maintaining a shopping cart and credit card processing why that's the thing uh, that is such a good instructive example of how getting in the business of the things where you want to uh, have a differentiated offering and things where it's going to be much more pain than than profit. And that's a prime example, I think, for that for that 
company. Building and maintaining a checkout experience was not a differentiator for them. And so they shouldn't have done it. Right. And then, you know, it's like people get attached to this particular code base and they're like, I'm an expert here. And we, we, you know, there's some cost fallacy of like, we put all this in here. We should be committed to it. And it's like, no, no, it's okay. I'll give I'll give you another example that this is bringing to mind. Rich text editing. I feel like it is yes. a it, every project uh, that we have been involved with with a content management system. People are like, well, should we write our own rich text editor, or should we go really minimal, really bare bones, and and get something that's really close to the metal, so that we have a ton of control over what that editing experience is. And nine times out of ten, you're gonna want to leverage something that gets you most of the way there. Because, yes. you know, we did it with with uh, parts of our MTA project where we, you know, we wanted the subway bullets to appear in the compose experience. Yes. And it took a minute to get that right and get that feeling natural. That's right. But, it, you know, in that example, that was core to the experience that we wanted to build. So it was worth it for us. But you, you have to constantly be asking yourselves from the very beginning of the project, am I creating a maintenance burden that I'm going to have to think about for the second release, the third release, and and forevermore, where if we can pull something off the shelf and not reinvent the wheel and get a huge head start, plus we're relying on, you know, maintenance from the third party. Right. If it's an actively maintained library or, you know, offering or service, um, it just gets you a lot of the way there for what is very often a, a pretty minimal cost. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, you know, it brings with it, y- y- you are relying on third party for, if it's open source, you can make changes and contribute them back and it's a virtuous cycle. I mean, we've done that. You know, yeah, we have done that. There are there are some trade-offs there, but the but the head start and, and the, you know, there's that burst of energy where like, I really want to, you know, build this like bespoke thing. And then at some point you're like, I just don't want to, up- I just don't want to update this text editor anymore or this e-commerce, right. you know? <laughs> Something else that we've seen that that you kind of alluded to with that um, the checkout experience, we've seen clients who come to us who you know had a very uh, passionate team who built a really uh, involved custom thing, and then they leave the company, and yes. now you've got to figure out how to go in, and it's like, well, you know, that was really Jim's baby. That was really and, Jim's uh, baby. He's yeah, the he only one know. who knows how to you know <laughs> go in there, and, and it just it's a world of hurt when you think yeah. about okay, now I've got to evolve this platform that is constantly evolving. Yep. The specialized stuff you should really invest in and make sure that it's well-documented and clear and can and can evolve really seamlessly and naturally. Uh, and then the non-specialized stuff, you should figure out how to get it off the shelf if you can. Yeah. Um, not just because it'll give you a better head start, although it probably will, but because it makes your life a whole heck of a lot easier in the future. Yep. I think another important thing about being sort of ready for the next phase, being future facing about your platform is being really choosy about what kind of like debt you're willing to take on, Mm. whether that's tech debt or design debt, right? When you're under the pressure of a deadline, you have an array, you know, things have to get cut, right? And there's a, there's a, there's a list of choices of things you can cut. And there are times when you can make a, a, a just, you know what, we're going to cut this corner. We're going to do this, not exactly the way we want to do it, but we're going to do it just to, just to get, to get to get to launch. Sure. But there are certain kinds of, of technical and design debt that I think uh, like are, we, you shouldn't, you shouldn't wait on. Like what? Well, one that we talk about a lot at, at Postlight is our design team is especially passionate about this is thinking about accessibility from yes. the beginning and not afterward. You, yes. you don't want to learn on launch day that, you know, a large percentage of your users are colorblind, for example, and can't mm-hmm. tell the difference between the, these two colors 
or that most of your users are going to be, you know, using, you know, one hand with a child, you know, holding on to the, the bar on the subway on their, on their way right. on the commute and, and not be able to, you know, get, get certain things done in your app. It's very expensive to learn after the fact that your app isn't accessible uh, and to go back and fix it than it is to kind of start off with accessibility concerns, you know, exactly. top, top of mind. Um, and I think this, you know, this, this similar, I've seen similar things with SEO. Like we launched the website. Mm-hmm. Why can't Google? Oh, because we didn't think about at all, <laughs> you know, right. like how, how it would show up. Um, and, and even just like some, you know, like, like the, the, the performance uh, example that I brought up earlier, where like launch happens, there's a big surge and, you know, it doesn't, the, the, the platform doesn't stand up because you just weren't thinking about, you know, that, that success state of, you know, thousands of people hitting at the same time. So there's, there are some corners that you have to cut, but, but there's some debt that if you take it on, you're really going to pay for it later. It just is going to make V1 and V2 that much slower because you're going to have to pay down the debt first before you can get out the, the features and fixes that you learn from the users who actually use the thing. Exactly. Once it's live. I have two more in this vein that I would add to the, to the list. Uh, localization. Oh, that's a big one. If you have to go back and retrofit and find all the strings that are in your code base and swap them out for, you know, grabbing from a, a, a file of uh, localized text, it's so much work and it's and it's annoying work yeah. like, where you're like, oh, I've got to, you know, just command F everywhere in this project. Like mm-hmm. it's it's so frustrating versus if you know ahead of time that your app is going to be available in multiple languages, especially if they're all left to right, it's pretty easy to just put, you know, a, a, a call for a string instead of the, the string itself. Yep. So that's a clear one. And the other one I would say is, is navigation. This one is maybe a little more subtle, but oftentimes people will take on debt in how to get around the app because they are only thinking about what's available right now at launch. Um, yes. And then the minute they introduce a new thing, they've got to rethink the navigation. And right. the reason why it's so painful, it's not so much on the design and engineering side, although it is painful on the design and engineering side, but it's it's a real pain for your users. Um, and, you're, and you are uh, passing off a real tax on them. And I personally hate this as uh, you know, a user of many software applications when the, 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 the core nav, nav the way changes. that I get the, it changes. Insulting. Yeah. It's insul- you're like, what, what you're killing me here? Because you added a reporting section that wasn't there before. And now <laughs> right. I have a hamburger menu instead of a top nav, like what's going right. on here. Um, so having a little bit, and you don't have to, you know, you don't have to think about like, oh, what are all the sections that we could possibly have in the next three years? It doesn't need to be that broad. It just needs to be, you know, what is the adjacent possible? What are the things that might come down the line? And how do we make sure that we've got a logical home for them, even if we don't know exactly what they are? And this is something that I, you know, I've seen our design team do firsthand, where they say, let's make sure that we are thinking about an extensible navigation structure. It doesn't have to cover every single case, but it goes a little bit beyond you know, what's in our MVP or what's in our 1.0 um, so that we're not boxing ourselves into a corner when we think about the future. Yeah, it's kind of going back to making it modular. Like we, like we can add more blocks here and here's how they would look. Exactly. Some of this is is hard to, you know, the, the modular piece, the reusable component, some of this is hard to do. I mean, when you're presenting to your stakeholders too, they want to see like what the thing's going to be, right? And then, you know, you have to you have to balance how you communicate like the value of these things, right? That's right. One of our directors of product design, Kirsten Sorton, she wrote this great piece, uh, you know, in the insight section of our website about, about user testing and like the mm-hmm. myths around user testing and how, you know, a lot of product folks or, or, or business owners will say, I know exactly what I want. Just like, please just build me this. 
And she's making the case that it makes sense to invest in that ahead of time because you, you probably don't know what you want or you're going to learn something from your users that you didn't know or you think that all your stakeholders have the same vision but like you all actually aren't reading reading each other's minds and it's one of those things where i think another example of a way to be future ready you can learn what your users want before there's a good line of code written and not after the whole thing is built and it's out in the world because it's so much more expensive to change things then than it is to like have some conversations you know and and do actual user testing like at the get-go but I think for someone who's excited to build software, they're like, I don't want to waste time talking to people about what I want to build. I'm excited. I want my thing. Let's start building the thing, right? Right. It's easy to overlook how yeah. valuable that could actually be if you just put in, you know, not a ton of effort. You don't, you don't, you don't have to invest in like a two-month research phase while you're right. building that MVP. But but a little bit of thoughts, uh, a little bit of thought, a little bit of conversation early on can be so, so valuable down the road. Yep. Have you ever been in a position where you're like, we have all this debt to pay down because we didn't do this prep <laughs> beforehand. Oh, and course. then you have to sort of represent the value of paying down debt, which which isn't visible kind of on the front end, you know, when you're when you're a couple of releases in. Part of this is like it's difficult to show the value of this upfront work because a lot of it feels invisible, but you reap the rewards of it after when your velocity, when your release velocity is so much better, right? And you're responding to user needs so much faster. Like that's actually what you're buying by doing some of this prep work upfront. And it's, it's always a balance, right? Yeah. It's beautifully said though. I mean, uh, it's easy. It's harder to see the value when you're not confronted with, you know, the three month project where the goal line is nothing should be different. <laughs> after we get, right. you know, we're going to invest three months and we'll know if we're successful if you don't know anything has happened. And it's like, oh, but sometimes, you know, you get in that situation. If you, if you can avoid it up front and save that future, that future effort, that future value um, that your team is going to, is going to spend, it, you're so much better off. It's just hard to see it sometimes in the beginning. It's true. We need, we need easier ways. Uh, we being people who make, who make products, we need, we need ways to explain these things. Like, like to be like, here's, you know, it's worth the investment for these reasons and everything's trade-off, you know? Everything's trade-off, that's right. Yeah. Well, if you're listening to this is thinking, I'm about to embark on a software effort and I would love to make sure I put myself in a good position for phase two, we'd love to talk to you. Excellent segue. Thank you. Uh, we are a full service digital strategy design and engineering firm uh, with a great product focus and we'd love to help you ship your thing. Uh, we really pride ourselves on putting real working software in the hands of users. And if you've got a project that you are trying to tackle or a thing that you're thinking about kicking off, reach out. Hello at Posi.com. We'd love to talk to you. We would. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Gina. This is fun. Let's get back to work. <laughs>